Olivia Lee runs a multidisciplinary studio in Singapore. Her work pivots from product to spatial design, research insights to ideation. A graduate of Central St. Martins, Olivia Lee combines her London experience with her Singaporean roots to establish a culturally nuanced design practice at the heart of Southeast Asia. Editor-in-Chief Susie Anetta sat down with her for a conversation about her work and career. This is the Design Dialogues. So, Olivia, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, delighted to be here. It's good to see you again. Mm. So I wanted to start our conversation today by going back to your childhood and um, having you talk a little bit about, um, you know, maybe what age you were when you realised you knew what you wanted to do or if you had different aspirations as a child and what they were. Uh, sure. Um, well, I think as a child I had many aspirations and I think every other week it was a different aspiration. Um, I grew up sort of like tinkering in the house and I think it helps having parents who were commercial artists and uh, had a small studio in the home as well so I think watching them uh, make and and you know produce analog graphic design was a huge sort of uh, passive influence on 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 how I how I wanted to make and create. So I think from a very young age, you know, I was uh, playing with Legos. I think that's quite a common thread among a lot of industrial designers. I was playing with Barbie dolls, which were hand-me-downs, but I was uh, sort of pulling them apart or cutting their hair or sewing clothes for the dolls rather than playing make-believe with with them. And um, I I think. In the estate that I lived, there was like a huge sort of like outdoor area and a lot of young children of similar age and they came from various backgrounds, a lot of like international school children whose families had settled in that neighborhood as well. So I grew up with neighbors from uh, Iran, from the Philippines, from, uh, you know, British nationals, as well as, as locals as well. And so I had a very kind of like uh, utopic idea of what the world was and it was always full of, um, you know, rich um, uh, sort of ethnic backgrounds and influences. And, you know, we would celebrate Deepavali, we would celebrate Halloween. So I think that really shaped a worldview mm. how I saw and made and imagined. Mm. Mm. So it sounds like the word design was part of your vocabulary from a very early age and that your parents were obviously a really huge influence. Yeah. Um, you studied at Central St Martins. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the sort of decision-making process of going there specifically and, yeah. and what that experience was like and also, yeah, living in London through that time? Yeah, for sure. So um, to talk about St Martins, I have to, to talk, I have to set up that journey to Central St Martins, which was... I actually kind of stumbled my way into industrial design. Um, of course, as a child, I knew I wanted to be an inventor. I, I think I toyed with being an architect. Um, I wanted to be a philosopher, a poet, a writer. And um, I think the, the struggle at that time was where there didn't seem to be a single discipline that felt like it truly contained all the aspirations that, that I wanted for myself. 
And it was only really um, after A-levels, which is like a, you know, a big national exam, that you're sort of confronted with a choice. You know, what discipline do I want to pick because it influences what university I, I want to go to? And um, it was actually a pamphlet that my father sort of like, um, you know, showed me. It was a new course that was opening at the National University of Singapore, which turned out to be the industrial design course. And it was maybe a three years old at that time. And I looked at the brochure and it said business, you know, entrepreneurship, engineering, and design and creativity. And I was like, wow, you know, this is everything that I want, you know, a little bit of everything um, culminating into this kind of polymatic Renaissance woman uh, kind of uh, appeal. And that's how I took the dive to study industrial design. And in Singapore, it wasn't such a, a well understood profession at the time. And a lot of relatives were quite, you know, confused. It was like, oh, so will you be designing factories? And, um, <laughs> you know, I, and I was like, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I went in there and it just felt, um, it felt like I had, I had found home. And, in the sense that everything that in the past had been my hobbies or my extracurricular activities or the thing that I was doodling while half paying attention in, in, in lectures was now my homework. And that was so liberating in a way and, and you know, to feel seen in a way by, by a course and by a profession. And so from there, I was hooked on industrial design because it, you really are, you know, when, you, when I look back now in hindsight, philosopher, anthropologist, you know, inventor, discoverer, explorer, artist, all these things in one. And um, with that, you know, my, my love for this passion really deepened and I said, I think I need to, to see the world. I need to go out and really, uh, um, you know, understand the, 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 the world of design internationally and I felt I wanted to experience an overseas education and it just so happened that Design Singapore had launched a design scholarship which hadn't existed in the past. And I think for a lot of Singaporeans, um, you know, government scholarships are really the, the way that someone can afford to travel overseas and, and have that experience. So mm. this was in the middle of, 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 of my NUS degree, but I said, you know, I'm going to try anyway and I'm going to, you know, maybe transfer schools and so I started, you know, thinking big, you know, I just applied to all the, 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 the big design schools overseas and I applied for my scholarship and I got it. And so um, at year two of NUS, I transferred to Central oh, St. Martins. Right. Okay. And yeah, and, and that's how I found myself in London, having never been there before, you know, only reading up about, <laughs> about Europe. I think probably that was the first time I was in Europe, period. Wow. And um, it was really uh, eye-opening and almost kind of destabilizing, but in a very good way, mm. as, as, as I think any creative should sort of invite mm. this paradigm shift or a disruption of the self, right? And it was a, a, a new chapter. And suddenly I found myself in very familiar territory again, because again, I was in this kind of like multicultural, mm. diverse, um, you know, context, and it's like this feels familiar, you know, and mm -hmm. and I and it was back to unstructured play, and it was back to 
multiple perspectives and um, the opposite of homogeneity and that was so eye-opening. Yeah. That sounds incredible. I didn't realise that that's how you ended up in central St Martins but mm. um, I love how you described that sort of sense of disruption and kind mm. of putting yourself in a in a very new environment at such mm. an early age. It's mm. Yeah, that's such an incredible experience. Um, so I believe that after Central St Martins you stayed on in London mm-hmm. for a little while longer and you went to work with um, the designer Sebastian Bernier. Is that mm. how you pronounce uh, his Sebastian name? Sebastian Byrne. Byrne. Mm. So what was that experience like? Kind of the first job outside of university. Yeah, Can you tell I us mean, about that? It was amazing. Uh, I graduated uh, in 2008 um, after the Lehman crisis. It was a big uh, recession and I think the idea of having securing any job you know, was a feat already. And um, I knew that I wanted to stay on in London because, you know, I, I really wanted to, to, to gain that professional experience. And, you know, after a summer of applying to many places, um, you know, I, I, I found my way uh, into Sebastian Burns studio. And, you know, I, I really credit my experience um, there as one of like a very he's a very formative sort of like design boss and mentor and uh, it's a very small practice a very small studio and I think it was a very sought after place to to even find work you know in such a small uh, practice and it really shaped the way I would then go on to approach and conduct my own studio I think what I really love about Sebastian's work is it's always it's full of poetry and charm and subtlety and uh, quiet confidence and the same thing can be said about the men and what I really loved about him was he was also an amazing family man Mm. and he was like by six o'clock I want to go home and have dinner with my family so whatever it is we'll get the work done and then we'll go on and have our lives and that was such um a refreshing take because I think I had peers who you know they were pulling all-nighters they were not going home and it seemed like that was the thing to to expect or be prepared for and mm. Sebastian was completely different and that really set a tone for me mm. that you can kind of have it all you know a healthy relationship with your your professional and your private life and it also taught me a lot about time management mm. and prioritization. And I was like, you know, you're right. You know, we set out to do our work in a given amount of time and then we go off and get to do other things. Mm. And so that's really carried with me um, in my own practice today. Mm. And, you know, on some days if we are, you know, terrific and we finish a job early, we're like, let's just go home early, which is what we did yesterday. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And... I feel like that's, um, I guess he really kind of created this idea of this really um, a healthy model or relationship to have with your work and practice and mm. the rest of your life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I sort of, it feels to me like that's quite a European way of mm. approaching things. Mm. Um, but it also is so incredibly important for creative people to just have space, headspace, yeah. right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. So how long did you stay there and, and sort of when did you make the decision to return home to Singapore? Yeah. So I stayed in London uh, about two and a half years after graduating. So I worked with Sebastian for about two years. And um, 
because of obligations with the scholarship, mm. uh, it was also um, sort of like a good time for me to return to Singapore. And that's how I found my way to the Economic Development Board of Singapore, which yeah. was also, I think, a big plot twist for a lot of people yeah. who knew me. Um, yeah, I never knew that about you, actually. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were really surprised <laughs> by, by that decision. Um, but I, you know, for me, I never saw it as a pivot. I saw that as um, an extension of what a designer does. And I think when I applied for um, a, a job at the Economic Development Board, I think they were equally <laughs> befuddled by my <laughs> choice. They were said, do you want to work in the, the, the branding or marketing department? I said, no, no, I, I want to do um, industry development and policy work. And they were like, okay. And I explained to them my rationale, which is where I, I see what you're doing as design as well. And, um, you know, it's just designing on a very macro level. You know, it's still problem solving. It's still being resourceful. It's having very defined parameters and very defined objectives, which to me sounds like design. Yeah. And I think this was in the very early days where, you know, design thinking had not really sort of like um, found its way into, um, you know, bigger institutions, you know, like in governments and in, in, in um, social institutions or like in, in insurance companies. And this was around the time where it started. The idea of, of incorporating design thinking methodologies in, into these institutions was picking up. So it was also timing, but also much credit to the organization for being open-minded. I think traditionally they would have hired engineers um, you know, economics mm. uh, majors or, you know, people who had done a PPE, which is a philosophy, uh, politics and, and, and economics. So mm -hmm. uh, I think it was also credit to um, the, the organization. They were very open-minded. And so I worked on the two portfolios within EDB, which was under um, consumer businesses. Mm -hmm. So which is all the brands or, or you know, uh, collaborators that designers and creative agencies would work with. So for me, I, I just saw it as an extension of, of understanding design's place in the rest of, of, of the system. Mm. And, um, you know, my colleagues would work with LVMH or um, Procter & Gamble. And I, I sat in a, in a team that was focused on encouraging user research or human-centered approaches um, as a practice and as a methodology um, and to be used to drive innovation. So again, sounds to me like design. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was really eye-opening, I think, because I was now sitting um, on the other side in a way, seeing how other people see design, Ooh. not as a practitioner, but as someone who might engage or commission design work and creative work. So I think it was very powerful. Um, place and, and vantage point and that really allowed me to understand where the values lie in design and the the business language um, that is used to best describe it and and transcribe it mm. you know to people outside the profession yeah that sounds incredible how long were you there for I was there for two years okay and then and then it was time and then I, I mean, I, I sort of think of it as my, my MBA, that, those two <laughs> years at, at EDB. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still take a, a lot of um, the skills and practice and mindset from EDB with me as I started my own studio. And, but after two years, I, I knew it was time to kind of roll up my sleeves and it was right. time to, to, you know, 
um, Dave. And that was when you started your own studio. That's so right. that was 2013, is that right? Yes. And you were 28 years old? Yes. I mean, that's quite incredible, actually. <laughs> I mean, that's such a young age. And it, I, I think for anyone at any age, starting yeah. a business is a really brave thing to do. Yeah. Um, I guess you felt at that stage that that accumulation of education and experience had kind of led you to be in a position where that was a natural next step? Um, It wasn't really so much a natural next step. And and I think it it wasn't so much bravery as as more of the fear of putting it off any longer. Right. (laughs) And um, that's how I explain it um, to to a lot of people because I I don't want to paint this rosy picture as if people arrive at a, at a very sure point of their life and know that this is the time to start. But for me, it was more of, it was a point in my life where the fear of not trying now exceeded the fear of trying. Mm. And um, I think that's when I felt that I needed to take that leap. Also, I was looking, I'm 28, I'm going to be 30 in two years. I just want to know that I gave it a shot. Mm. And... Um, I think for people who know me in that journey, I actually kind of tricked myself into that the <laughs> process of starting my own studio by giving myself permission to mess up for a whole year. So I, you know, I had saved up from from working at EDB, and I said, you know, I'm just gonna give myself one year, and I'm just gonna have carte blanche, and I'm just gonna do whatever I want to do from a creative. Um, as a creative blank check and I wasn't going to worry about sustainability or or commercialization it was really um, a free pass just a bit of experimentation yeah. really yeah. yeah and to just kind of like get it out you know of the system and uh, I, I kind of framed it I gave myself a brief and it was, I call it the open brief year so it's kind of like my own creative sabbatical slash own residency program. And <laughs> I figure if people, you know, pay for a gym membership for 12 months, I'm just going to rent a desk in like a creative co-working space. And that's going to be my creative gym membership. And that's when I said, you know, I'm only going to do projects that I think are really interesting and I'm not going to worry about, um, you know, commercial mm. uh, ends mm. yet, Yeah, you know. And you had a bit of a buffer. So, yes, yeah. yeah, and I would see. And at least I know that if this is all there is, I gave it my best shot and with, with zero compromise. And that led to, you know, a couple of projects which really sort of define, came to define my practice or at least it showed people that um, this is what I wanted to do. Mm. Even if those clients had not existed yet, I was going to be my first client and commission the kind of work that I want to, mm. want to do, um, which I can elaborate. Yeah, more. I would love to. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I mean, you, you're now coming up to well, nine years, almost mm. a decade of practice. So yeah, <laughs> what were those formative projects? Do you want to talk about, yeah, about a few milestones? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the really um, magical things that happened when I made that decision to uh, have an open brief year. So I was, I was in this tiny desk at the back of house of a Singapore brand called Supermama. And back then, Edwin had a little sort of like artist residency sort of situation. So you could rent a desk and you could like, you know, practice out of there. So I was there and and I think my first month of sitting on the desk going, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing here? 
um, there was this knock on the door and the shop hadn't opened yet so I, I just went to, to answer the door and it was this um, sort of like this Japanese man uh, with a little goatee and you know, he was kind of huffing away it was, it was very hot that day and he said uh, hi I'm looking for a designer her name is Olivia and I was just like that's me <laughs> and he said yeah you know she 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 left EDB now she's practicing and I would like to meet her and um, you know this this man turned out to be Yoichi Nakamoto who, ah, who I know uh, Yoichi. you know yeah. yeah and he was putting together this um, Singapore showcase of designers for the Triennale ah. and uh, you know he was like, doing like Avengers Assemble he was like picking all the talent from Singapore and he he knew me or he found me and so it really it really was like the 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 manifestation of that saying where you know if if you know you send out your call to the universe the universe of like returns that will respond but you have to you have to make that step to to make that call and here was the universe going olivia i think you did not make a wrong decision and, and that year that I left EDB and started my practice, the following year I was exhibiting at the Triennale at oh, Milan Design Week. That's amazing. So I think those were one of the, you know, the few moments that felt okay, you know. I made I, the right decision. I think I made the right decision. <laughs> and one of the next projects I did was for a Singapore Design Festival and it was the Marvelous Marble Factory. So I was working with the organizers of the Singapore Design Festival and they had partnered me with um, a marble um, or stone yard in Singapore called um, Paula Stone and I had again a, a sort of like a, a blank check to just design a space or installation that was uh, commissioned by Paula Stone and rather than do the typical exhibition design which is to just display slabs of samples of materials I was like how can we really create something crazy and something that I want to see, you know, something that I wish I would see in Singapore, which we often see, uh, you know, in, in overseas um, festivals. And, and it was amazing because um, the lady, the boss of Paula Stone was also almost like an emissary of the universe. I was sort of <laughs> talking to her about what she wanted and, uh, you know, this is what we could do. And she was like, no, Olivia, you were the artist. You tell us what you want to do. You know, this is your vision. And it was just amazing, you know, because this is like, you know, a very traditional old school um, uh, entrepreneur, uh, deeply, you know, entrenched in, in the construction industry. And she is someone who's telling me, it's, it's your call. And that was another sort of like um, sign, mm. right? And that, you know, this just keep being you keep being original mm. don't um, you don't need to cater you know and so those were like a few key things and this project that I ended up doing called the Marvelous Marble Factory you know that was like a long queue to come into the exhibition space and then people were talking about it people still talk about it now mm. um, I wish I'd seen that uh, yeah well, I'll send you pictures <laughs> and um, I think it really showed showed people what my mind was like as a creative and what I wanted to do and I think mm. that led on to, to other partnerships mm -hmm. such as Hermes. Right, yeah, yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? That must have been quite surreal. 
Very to be similar. working with a brand like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, so they they came to know about my work through through word of mouth, um, you know, and I think the marvelous marble factory was one of the few projects that I had because I was still a very uh, young studio at the time, um, as well as the they came to know about the collection that I had done in 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 Milan called the Athena collection, and I think these two. Um, projects I feel are very kind of like signature at that time because it showed um, my sense of humor but also my deep love for aesthetics and how you know I don't shy away from beauty and but also that both projects are very kind of um, uh, thought-provoking there's a lot of hidden messages encoded in, in my work and it's speculative and it's meant to be thought-provoking and I think they really appreciated that and I think it resonated with their own brand values you know of being um, this very witty very quietly confident mm. um, you know brand so that's how we we, 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 we came to work with Hermes Mm, fantastic. So, you know, you've already talked a little bit about, um, you know, a couple of different typologies of, of work that you've produced. You know, I've seen from you furniture and <laughs> carpets and product, but mm. also you've talked about temporary spaces and installations. Mm. You know, I'm curious to know whether you feel that the multidisciplinary nature of what you do is really fundamental to you as a designer and your practice. Would you, mm. would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean... I definitely agree that um, multidisciplinary uh, work is, is, is very key to my practice. Like, I wouldn't even say it's fundamental. It's, it's, it's just my way of being. Mm. I mean, it's just the way um, I think creatively, which is that um, it isn't uh, typology-centric. It's really concept-driven. And once we know what the concept is, once we know what the message we're trying to create, then it cascades into what's the best way to create that experience. And, and then we decide what typology it would be. You know, would it be an installation? Does it fit more into a space? Is it like a series of, of, of accessories? And of course, it's, it's driven by the clients and the briefs. Um, but I always sort of start like much earlier about what what are we trying to do you know what kind of feeling are we trying to create and for me it's a lot like planning a party it's like just orchestrating all the elements um to arrive at this very kind of like satisfying payoff so we'll do whatever it takes you know we'll enter whatever territory um so long as it kind of culminates in, in that effect mm. yeah so, I mean, look, the world of industrial design, you know, traditionally was probably quite imbalanced. I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, some time ago it would have been mm -hmm. very outweighed by men versus women. And mm -hmm. I, I dare to say that that's changed quite a lot in the last few decades. Mm -hmm. That there's, and, you know, there always has been incredible female designers, but I think yeah. the number of graduates that we're seeing coming out of school is far more balanced than it was before. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't normally raise gender with a designer. I just don't think it's necessarily something that needs to be talked about. But yeah. I feel like there is a sense of femininity to your work. And mm. I wonder if you would agree with that. I, you know, I obviously haven't seen everything that you've produced, but I've been familiar, you know, with your work for some time. Mm. Certainly with some collections, I think the Athena collection you, you sort of spoke of before, which 
um, I saw at Satellite in Milan. So, mm. yeah, I think, you know, is it something that you think you're conscious of when you're working and designing or is it just not part of the thought process? Um, it's, it's a yes and no answer. And maybe one step backwards is what is, what is it that we see are the characteristics in design that we associate with femininity? And does that um, beg some examining as well, right? So, um, you know, perhaps, you know, one might say my work is feminine because it uses uh, soft forms and, um, you know, the colorway is m- maybe more pastel or, um, or we don't shy away from, um, you know, more expressive or, or poetic expressions. But then if we, if we examine it harder, can we truly say that that is a territory reserved only for the feminine? Because um, there are a lot of men with, you know, beautiful, voluptuous, soft work as well. You know, male designers use soft pastel colors. So it isn't really that, right? Um, but at the same time, I am very proud and aware that I am a woman. And um, But as I'm creating, I think it always, all roads still lead back to the concept and the, the, the essence of what we're trying to do. And I think as any author or creator, um, you sort of plant a flag or you, you take a position on how you best execute that. And there is no denying that I am a woman <laughs> at the back that is the engine that is driving these choices. So, of course, it is feminine. Um, but I, I think, you know, as you rightly pointed out, I, sometimes I think the conversation of how gender influences work um, may sort of like detract from the creator. Mm. And maybe when we look at their, the way they execute and the way they think gender is the least interesting thing about how those um, you know, creative works were shaped. Mm. Um, uh, but, I, but I am also equally aware of how important it is, um, how important representation is. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I named my studio after me, like an eponymous studio, because um, especially in Asia, I just wanted it to be very clear who the boss was. <laughs> you know, um, you know there had been That's you know point. <laughs> uh, funny anecdotes of arriving at at the factory, and they'll ask me where my manager or boss was, and so I think it just helped to have my name on the name card and said, "I'm the boss." I'm, I'm the boss. <laughs> so I, it's it's that, and I think you know it's. I guess I'm hearing that it's rare for for women or female designers to start eponymous practices, you know, mm. and to sort of really be the face of your own practice is is not easy and 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 not that common. Um, but I suppose I'm always looking at um, uh, you know other you know female designers as well, and um, in a way we it's like maybe selection bias. Like I feel there. Are, um, there are a lot of women and great sisterhood, you know, that's coming in, in into being in the design industry. So I really don't worry about it being sort of like um, uh, a boys' game. Like that's mm. hardly um, on my mind at all. And I think, like, with the analogy of the universe, you know, you find your people and you'll find your tribes. You find the the brands that align with you. You'll find your audience that's attracted to your work. And I think that's 
fundamentally the most important not trying to have to appeal um, across all bases mm. yeah that's a great answer I guess perhaps a better question might be given one's gender whether a designer is more inclined to design products or objects that cater to that gender I don't ah. know maybe that was I guess what I was getting at with the right. Athena collection particularly because I think that often not that there is vast difference between the genders but obviously there are specific mm. needs that are different between the two and I think maybe a woman would be more sensitive to what other women need I don't know oh no I, I definitely agree with that for sure I mean um, that may be an interesting segue into a, one of the most recent projects that I did was which was for Tulips mm. which is an intimate skincare brand for women and uh, they actually one of their marquee products was a moisturizer or like a, a mask for your vulva and you know when I when I heard about this project and knew that they were designing a flagship store I just felt this really needs a woman's perspective. Yes. I just can't imagine <laughs> anyone but a woman designing this space. Absolutely. And um, I mean, that's a, a very clear example where I feel, um, you know, representation really matters and having such an, an intimate uh, understanding and awareness for what a woman goes through or what how a woman's uh, relationship with the body is like and how do you represent that in a retail space that is inviting and um, you know encourages body confidence so I think that's definitely there mm. and I think you know that speaks to empathy right mm. and I think we by virtue of our gender, we can know and experience um, the woman's condition the way someone cannot, mm. <laughs> someone else cannot. So, Absolutely. So that definitely one. Um, but I, I, but but then I also don't think it means that women can only design products for women and mm. men should only I, I mean I don't think it's about that at no all. I yeah. don't at all but I'm really glad that you raised that as an example mm. I think that's really interesting so moving on from gender issues <laughs> let's talk about other aspects of your work because I think you know from conversations that we've had but also other interviews that I've read and listened to I think you know luxury mm. technology and craftsmanship seem to be very important to you they mm. seem to be topics that you talk about quite a lot and I wonder if you could maybe unpack that a little bit more for me and talk about why um, they're important to you. Yeah, well, for sure. I think the, the, the real reason why you see technology uh, features so much in my work is because I'm such a sci-fi nerd. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... Um, one of the you know one of the early professions that I entertained as a child was inventor and scientist and I think I've always sort of looked towards the future with great um, sort of like romance and optimism and I feel like industrial designers in a way at their heart of hearts are, are optimists right because they, they see design as a tool for doing good and for um, leveraging emerging technologies to create new new ways of being and, and new formats of lifestyle. So this relationship with the future and technology is very close to my heart. And that's one way I see design as sometimes a tool for, for discursive work where it's meant more to reflect and imagine and speculate on the future and 
um, at, at NUS, I am now an adjunct assistant professor as well. And there is this pet platform that I run called Fictitious Forms, where I take students on um, their own speculative journeys and we imagine alternate realities and design for these alternate realities. And it's a really great way of, of understanding and utilizing design as a tool for imagining future possibilities and, and probabilities. And the conceit of using alternate realities instead of um, pure um, uh, horizon um, sort of scanning speculative work is it really takes you out of the assumptions of your reality today and I think it allows them to be empathetic for issues that are truly maybe what may feel foreign. Um, so some of the scenarios that they've designed for uh, a world in which symmetry is um, the standard of beauty, um, a world where we were all born without opposable thumbs, um, a world where everyone um, does not have peripheral vision. So what would products and furniture look like in, in, in worlds like these? And uh, so this, this practice of speculating is very, very powerful and dear to me mm. as, as a tool for designers and creatives. Yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, that kind of segues to my next question quite nicely, which is about your teaching. And it sort mm. of seems in some way that's almost you coming full circle and I guess after the scholarship, being able to come back and, and teach mm. and kind of give back to the next generation. Do you feel that that teaching, I mean, aside from what it gives to the students, but do you feel that it is a two-way um, experience that you're actually gaining and from the students as well? And does it bring something new to your practice, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I teach to learn. I think that um, that's that for me is is the, the engine that drives my passion for teaching. And um, I, I really respect my students, you know, I don't really, I, I really see them as um, the, the emissaries of the future who are teaching me where the world is going. And I'm there to listen and learn and to serve. And, um, and where I can, it's to impart really hard-won lessons that I've learned through experience so they may then have a foot up or a leg up and they don't have to repeat those similar mistakes or they can build off that and be a super generation you know that will that will exceed the current generation of, of designers in Singapore so I, I I also see that as like my form of rebellion it is like to to, to sort of impart um, mischief to impart um, uh, sort of like status quo challenging sort of like sensibilities because I think that's desperately needed in the design profession and it's to kind of arm them with cultural confidence and, and creative confidence so that they may step up onto an international platform and feel completely ready to command an audience and I really want that for um, young Singapore designers um, which is why that's my, my ulterior motive to teach. Yeah, imparting yeah. mischief. I love that. Yeah. That's so lovely. <laughs> well, you also mentioned cultural confidence, and I mm. think that that's such a great way to kind of segue to my next and final question, even though I feel like I could chat all morning. Mm. You know, being based in Singapore, whether you identify as a Singaporean designer or not, but, you know, regardless, you're based here, your practice is here, and obviously you've benefited to some degree, at least from the scholarship and the teaching experience seems mm. to be really uh, formative for you as well. But, you know, obviously Singapore has 
changed a lot in um, the last few decades, but it, you know the industry has changed, it's grown, it's, um, it's evolved. Its reputation on an international platform has certainly grown and changed, and it's you know it's hard to argue that it, it really is on an international level now, rather than sort of not competing, but sort of talking about what's happening regionally. Singapore is an international player, and you know I wonder whether you've sort of noticed that, whether it's a similar optic from your side being based here or whether as an outsider it's easier to see that, but also, you know, whether you feel like you've benefited from um, that growth and that evolution beyond just the scholarship. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think Singapore has really uh, kind of transformed leaps and bounds, you know, creatively and if you just look at the wider ecosystem of like entrepreneurs and, and businesses that, you know, new design brands, um, you know, I, I know of some students who already have side hustles, you know, uh, some are uh, minting NFTs, some have a healthy uh, custom gaming keyboard, key 3D printing business, oh and I'm, I'm all for it. So when I, when I talk to my students today, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that the path for them may be a, a it may have to be a traditional job in a company, and I'm telling them what's stopping you from starting your gig today, and you know use the design school experience as a way to pilot, and to launch, and you know to to take the risks, and um, you may very well be in, inventing your own profession. Like you don't need to wait for a job to 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 catch you. Mm. when you graduate from from school you invent that for yourself and so i think the other the other mission is to kind of impart a more entrepreneurial spirit and um you know i think designers are in a very different position now than they were in the past because you know the access to manufacturing that the ability to distribute through e-commerce i mean those are like the the early um ways in which um, the, the playing field has, has evolved and changed. But now if you add on like all this conversation around decentralization and the metaverse and the idea of like um, minting NFTs, um, digital products, you know, I think decentralization is, is really going to change the, the creative dynamic you know, of how um, designers monetize and build businesses. So when I look at them, I said, wow, your future is going to be wildly different from ours mm. and my my I'm just there to make sure you know they're ready for it and and can catch it um and yeah I forgot what the question was well I <laughs> guess just Singapore but I think uh, you know I guess it, I guess talking about the next generation is a good way to talk about that it's yeah um, I mean going back to your question yeah for sure um and I've benefited I mean I think you know without the scholarship and without all these initiatives and with and interestingly, like when the government started sort of including design and design thinking in their larger vocabulary and sort of like um, incorporating it into like early education, you know, so um, even like primary school or secondary school um, educators now have sort of some exposure to design thinking and that's like imbibed in children at a much younger age. I mean, you mean, I mean there are many levels to talk about the design 
um, culture in Singapore, you know, the exposure to it, you know, how we are creating much more sophisticated um, design consumers. And then you have much more daring design centric businesses who maybe own brands or services. And then you can go up a higher level, which is, I think for me, it's the where Singapore sits is this interesting sort of like um, focal point for technology as well in the region. And when you couple that with design, um, I think there's a lot of very, a lot of interesting potential uh, for the future of designers. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I answer your question. No, I think that's a great answer. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's always it's always a st- it's sort of an ongoing evolution. It doesn't stop. It doesn't, yeah. and I, I don't think it's slowing down either, which is really exciting to watch. I guess you know, from my perspective as an outsider, it's um, it's exciting. There seems to be a lot going on yeah. all the time, which is great. So it's wonderful, and I I feel like. Um, like ge- general Singapore society understanding for um, new types of businesses, like that appetite has really grown. Mm. So it's it's allowed us to support you know more interesting businesses, but also just the access to an international market is just is much quicker now. Like you can have a TikTok or an Instagram business, and you're immediately. Um, international, but you mm. can take international commissions. So that that idea of geographical location, sort of um, setting the the context for which you operate, is kind of blurring. Mm. And so, if you can access the world from anywhere, I think Singapore is a really great base to yeah. do it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty central. It's central. It's safe. It's fast. Um, and the internet is stable, and and you know you would think that's a minor thing, but no, that's a major it's thing. Very important. You know? Yeah. And those are like, um, it's like Maslow's hierarchy. You know, when your 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 essentials are taken care of, it allows you to then focus and drive towards um, actualization. Mm. So I I feel you know empowered to be based here. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Well thank you so much Olivia. It's it's you know it's always a pleasure chatting, but this is the first time in a while that we've been able to sit down and talk at this length. So it's been a pleasure and I appreciate your time. It's wonderful. Thank you for having me.